This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Today I'll continue my discussion about the prophetic gift. And in particular, today I'll look at examples in the New Testament, how the prophetic gift is lived out, and how we see evidence of the gift of prophecy all through the New Testament. And last time, I talked about the prophetic gift through the Old Testament and gave a little introduction. If you haven't listened to that talk, I encourage you to go back and listen to that and then follow up here with part two. Before I get into that, I'd like to remind you of something I mentioned before. I've been working on a project with the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, and we've launched a website. It's elizabethelliot.org, an S in Elizabeth and two L's in Elliot, elizabethelliot.org. If you don't know much about her, she was a missionary in South America, she and her husband, and they had a little girl. Her husband and four other men were killed by a tribe, a Stone Age tribe. This was in the 1950s. And after her husband was killed, a couple of years later, I think it was, she moved into the village and lived with the people who killed her husband. And then later, uh, she wrote books about it. She became a speaker, well-respected author. There's a lot of very, very good information on her website. I encourage you to go there and listen to her talks. She had a radio program for many years, and over 400 of those radio programs are on the site. We also have about 150 of her lectures, also her books. And you can sign up for a weekly devotional that's released every Thursday, and you can also subscribe to her podcast. We've created a podcast of her long-form talks that comes out every Monday, and that is called the Elizabeth Elliott Podcast. You can go to the website and subscribe or just find it wherever you find podcasts. So we will move on. I'd just like to cover a little bit of ground again from before. I think the most important thing that I'd like to reiterate today as I get started is that God gives gifts to his people so that those gifts will be a blessing to others. That's the argument that we're going to find that the Apostle Paul makes, particularly when the church is meeting, when there's a gathering of believers. But all through life, gifts are given by God to help other people. I mean, of course, they're a blessing to us when we receive these gifts, but they are given to be a help to other people. God will give his gifts to people that may not be spiritually mature. And why would that be? Well, I guess one reason is <laughs> not very many people would have spiritual gifts if God waited to give those gifts to people that were fully mature. But I think mostly it's because he really loves people. And anyone who is willing to be used by him in whatever way, he will give that gift. He'll give wisdom without finding fault, the Apostle James says, which is an encouragement to me. If I need wisdom and I'm asking God, God will give me wisdom without finding fault. Of course, there's a lot of fault to find in me, but the Lord doesn't say to his people, well, you've asked for wisdom, but you've got some problems and those need to be fixed up before I'll give you wisdom. 
No, I, I would make the argument that the way for us to get past all our faults is to walk in the wisdom that God gives us, rather than trying to be better so that later we could receive his wisdom. And I think it's very true with other gifts that he gives. We're focusing on the prophetic gift, but within the context of other gifts that God gives. These are spiritual gifts. And again, I'm very aware that some people listening may not agree with my perspective on this. Some people believe that the gifts are not for today, that the time of the giving of these spiritual gifts ended when the canon of Scripture was set and agreed upon by the church. I used to think that, but now I don't. And that's based upon my reading of Scripture and also from my experience being obedient to what I see in the Scripture. And we'll talk about that some more today. I had a funny thing happen to me. I was giving this talk in Congo a few years ago, and they are very open to having prophets come and speak to them. And they put out a thing on Facebook, and I guess advertising, maybe signs or things like that anyway, said, come hear the great prophet Mike Cantrell from the United States, something like that. So I had to write to them (laughs) and say, I am not coming to you as a great prophet. I'm coming to you as a teacher. And when I started my teaching, I said, I'm speaking as a teacher, not as a prophet. Though those of you who know me know that I do have some experience with this prophetic gift. And I've been able to walk in this gift and see very good fruit from this gift in a lot of countries around the world. So in that sense, I speak from experience, but my experience really has nothing to do with the truth of it. The truth of it is rooted in Scripture and the revealed will of God. Now, last time I talked about what prophecy is not. Again, as I said, please go back and listen to that if you haven't. Prophecy isn't preaching. Prophecy is not about making predictions. It's not being skilled in political analysis. A prophet is not necessarily a person who has great moral leadership. Prophets are not necessarily people who are visionaries. Certainly, a prophet is not necessarily someone who has a natural ability to speak in public and speak with authority. My goodness, uh, we have lots of examples today and in history of people who could speak with authority who didn't really have authority. True prophecy is not emotional and it's not intellectual. So what is it? Simply, the gift of prophecy is giving a voice for God. As we move out of the Old Testament into the New Testament, I want to remind you of a couple of things related to this gift of prophecy or the prophetic actions as we see them in the Old Testament. The Old Testament finishes with two specific hopes as regards the prophetic gift. Uh, The first one is that one day there will come a man who will be called the prophet, and that's from Deuteronomy chapter 18. This great prophet, the prophet, will be the one person who will speak for God with the most depth and knowledge. He will be like Moses. And as we open up the New Testament, we see that people are awaiting for this prophet to come. The other hope, as relates to the prophetic gift, is found in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and following. And this is quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 2, as he explains to the people who are listening what they're witnessing as they hear people speaking in other languages after the Spirit has been poured out. And that hope is that there will be a nation of prophets 
that is created by the pouring out of God's Spirit. And of course, that is what we see in Acts chapter 2. So as we're looking into the New Testament, there's a desire for the prophet and also the expectation of a nation of prophets of all kinds of people. And those are ultimately fulfilled in the New Testament. This is the desire of Moses for the prophet and the prophecy of Joel, that there will be a nation of prophets. Also, as I closed out my talk last time, I mentioned what is perhaps the most significant difference between the Old Testament writings and the New Testament writings, and what is the great difference between the Old Testament prophet and the New Testament prophet. The difference is the New Covenant, the promise of the indwelling Spirit that God promises in the Old Testament in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, to write his law on our minds, to write it on our hearts, that he will give us a new heart, a new spirit, and he will give us his spirit to move within us, both to will and to do his teachings. So that's the line between the Old Testament and the New Testament, this giving of the spirit, the indwelling spirit, that gives people the desire and the power to know his will and gives us his mind as well. So, let's move into the New Testament now. The New Testament begins with John the Baptist. He is a man from God, and he is very much the last of the line of the Old Testament prophets, and yet he is the beginning of something new. He's a great figure, John the Baptist, and there's much, much that we can learn from him. People consider John to be a prophet. We see that in Matthew chapter 14 and Mark chapter 11. He certainly was a man who had prophetic actions in his lifestyle. He didn't do miracles, but he spoke prophetically, calling people to repent, preparing the way for the Lord. And then comes the prophet. After John, here comes the prophet of Deuteronomy chapter 18, Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah. And many times Jesus was called a prophet. And here are the examples of when he was called a prophet. When he raised the widow of Nain's son in Luke chapter 7. When he fed the 5,000 in John chapter 6. When he spoke to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 when he entered Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 21, on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, and Jesus called himself a prophet in Mark chapter 6. Remember he said a prophet is not honored in his hometown. Jesus is the prophet. He is the Messiah. He is the king that sits on David's throne, and he is the great prophet. And Jesus is our greatest model for this prophetic ministry. Now, it's interesting to think and to understand that Jesus wasn't primarily explaining what God had said centuries before. He was not only a teacher, but he was bringing a new word. He was telling people what God is saying now. And much of this is very specific to Jesus himself as the Messiah, as God incarnate that he is creating scripture as he speaks, right? He's bringing a new word. But this is an example of a prophetic ministry. And this is the difference between being a teacher 
being a prophet. A teacher talks about what was said before, and a prophet says what God is saying now. We have to remember what Jesus said. He said, these words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. In another place, he said, for I did not speak on my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. And that is the role of prophet that Jesus fulfills. Whatever the Father has told me to say, that is what I say. Jesus as the prophet. The ultimate goal of a prophet is to say only what God is saying, not thus said the Lord, but thus says the Lord. I want to underscore again what I said last time. Prophecy is a supplement to Scripture. It is never a substitute for Scripture. Jesus had a particular authority, of course, to speak new things that were absolutely true. He's revealing something that's totally new. And often he was explaining more deeply what was seen in the Old Testament. Several times in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, You have heard it said this, but now I'm telling you this. He expands and explains more deeply and reveals more fully the heart of God and the will of God. Still, I want to underscore that what a prophet says, a prophetic gift says, this is what God is saying right now. And a teacher explains what God has said. And those two are needed. Those two roles are needed. They were necessary in the early church, and I believe they're necessary now. So let's consider the church age. Let's consider the church. Was Jesus the end of the line? Was he the height of prophecy, the complete fulfillment of this prophetic gift? Well, actually, scripturally, the prophetic ministry of Jesus is to continue in his second body, the church. He wants us to continue in this ministry as prophets. That's what the scriptures reveal. Jesus himself said, You will receive power and you will be my witnesses. And on Pentecost, the Spirit was poured out. As I mentioned earlier, Peter said that the prophet Joel, this is in Joel chapter 2, had foretold that day of Pentecost. And this is the quote, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids. In those days I will pour out my spirit. Now all through the book of Acts and the epistles, there is a lot of prophetic ministry. In the book of Acts, we see the prophetic ministry at work in chapters 11, 13, 15, 19, and 21. In the book of Acts, it is a normal part of church life. Isn't that interesting? Uh, the prophet Agabus is mentioned twice in the book of Acts, as well as the four daughters of Philip the Evangelist. All through the epistles, we see the prophetic gift mentioned, and this is perhaps what most of you who are listening would think of when we begin to think of spiritual gifts and the spiritual gift of prophecy. And prophecy is a gift. That's quite clearly stated multiple times. 
I want to talk briefly about something I mentioned before. I have a previous episode called From Athens to Corinth. I want to talk about it here again because I believe this gives a really good context for when we're going to read in Paul's letters, in particular his letter to the church in Corinth. What happened when he went from Athens to Corinth? In Athens, in Acts chapter 17, Paul had reasoned with quite a few philosophers and people there in Athens who loved to hear about the latest ideas, and they would talk about them and discuss them. And then at the end of Paul's talk in Acts chapter 17, it says there, when these people in Athens heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that time, then Paul left the council he'd been talking to, and the scriptures say that a few people became followers of Paul and believed. Paul goes from Athens to Corinth, which is a couple of days' trip, as far as I can tell, not too far from Athens to Corinth. And when he gets to Corinth, we read later in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 what his thinking was as he was moving from Athens to Corinth. Remember that he had been reasoning with people in Athens, talking to philosophers. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. I really do think this is significant, and it's helpful for me to see how Paul was rethinking how he communicated things. He had been reasoning with philosophers, and a few people believed. Then as he goes to Corinth, he begins to think, well, I don't want people to be persuaded by my thinking. I want their faith to rest on the power of God, the reality of the flow of God's life. And how was this power demonstrated through Paul? Well, of course, he was an apostle and he performed signs and wonders. But I believe, based on what he wrote to the church in Corinth, that in part this power was demonstrated through Paul in spiritual gifts. And we'll talk here very soon about what those gifts are. Because a lot of times when people talk about spiritual gifts, they think only in tongues and prophecy and perhaps healings and raising the dead. But there are a lot more spiritual gifts than the big flashy ones. Paul lists the gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And it's interesting that five of the nine gifts mentioned by Paul there use the voice. We'll look through these in just a minute. We'll read through, take some time to look at what the gifts are, because I believe it is very important for us to understand the broader context of spiritual gifts as we consider and think about and study what is this prophetic gift. As I mentioned, five of these nine gifts that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 12 use the voice. The Word of God has power. Remember, God saw nothing, and then he said, let there be light, and there was light because God said it. As we know, words have great power. It's very easy 
just in our flesh to tear people down by saying the wrong things in the wrong way. The Word of God is powerful. It's very powerful. And it's interesting. I think it's significant. And I'd say remarkable in the sense that we should remark upon it that these gifts of God, many of them use the voice. Human beings communicating to other human beings by language. In Paul's epistles, there are actually three chapters that list spiritual gifts. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and Ephesians chapter 4. And there is only one ministry that is mentioned in all three of those passages, and that is the gift of prophecy. Of all the other ministries of the church, that seems to be the one that God has singled out for emphasis. Now, when I give this talk in other places, I do something that's kind of fun, and I pick this up again from David Pawson. I mentioned him in my last talk. Uh, much of what I'm sharing here comes from his teaching on the gift of prophecy. This is something that he did. He mentioned it in one of his talks, and I've been doing it, and it's a lot of fun. For instance, when I was in Congo talking about this, I took with me some very large bars of American chocolate. Uh, the Americans listening will understand when I say it was a Hershey's bar, but one of the really big ones, like super-sized chocolate bar. But I also did this at a church in America. It's a lot of fun. As I'm teaching this, I will say, here is a piece of chocolate. When I'm in America, often it's a piece of Russian chocolate, like a Russian chocolate bar. I'll put it down and say, here is some very, very good candy. And I'll put it next to me as I'm speaking. And I'll say, whoever wants this chocolate bar, just come up and get it. And then I'll go on teaching. And the chocolate bar sits there. And you can see people looking and really wanting the chocolate bar. But they're hesitant to get up because nobody else is getting up. And I'm still talking. And finally, somebody is going to get up and run up and grab that gift, grab that chocolate well, that is a really good picture of how God offers spiritual gifts. The Bible says we should eagerly desire these gifts. He offers these gifts. But if we don't pick them up, if we don't take them to ourselves, then we don't have them. They're offered. This would be the same image as uh, giving a gift at Christmas time, all wrapped up in a box. But if somebody doesn't pick it up, even if it's got their name on it, if they don't pick it up and open it, then... Well, I guess you could say it's their gift, but they're not using it. So that's the way it is with spiritual gifts. And that's what Paul says, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. We don't earn them. We don't work and then God pays us wages of spiritual gifts. They're gifts. But we've got to desire them. We've got to pick them up and use them. And I'll talk about that in just a little bit, the practical side of things. I think I'd like to read now more generally, what these spiritual gifts are. In Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 8, Paul is making the argument that each of us is a member of the body of Christ. It's the same argument he makes in his letter to the church in Corinth. Starting in verse 4, Paul writes, Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We all have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. 
If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. So quickly, I'll just read through what this list of gifts is. Prophecy, service, teaching, encouraging, contributing to the needs of others, leadership, showing mercy. I think a lot of people have this gift of encouragement. Barnabas is mentioned several times in the New Testament, and that name means son of encouragement. He was an encouraging fellow. Teaching, of course, is a spiritual gift. Some people have a natural gift for teaching, but God gives a spiritual gift of teaching. So we see prophesying, serving, teaching, encouraging. I think it's also interesting here, it says that people can have a spiritual gift of leadership. Someone who is not necessarily a leader, naturally, can be given a spiritual gift of leadership. So if you don't think you're naturally a leader, well, don't let that hinder you from being a leader. (laughs) because God can give you a spiritual gift of leadership. It can be in some big task or just in a small task. And if you get this spiritual gift of leadership, govern diligently. Give yourself to it. Really focus on it, because that's the way you can serve others, by leading. Also showing mercy. Being a merciful person. A spiritual gift of mercy. I think that's beautiful. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. This is a list of gifts that God gives to the church. In verse 11 and following, Paul writes, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. So here we have a list of these spiritually gifted people who are given to the church. There's an apostolic gift. And of course, people really define that differently in many ways. But, but apostles were people who showed signs and wonders and who planted new work, went where nobody had ever heard the gospel before. So we have this list of spiritual gifts, the apostolic gift, the prophetic gift, the gift to be an evangelist and pastors and teachers. And I do want to underscore here very quickly that these gifted people are given to the church to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. That's why God gives gifted people to the church, to prepare the church to do his work. Sometimes there is a hard line drawn between clergy and laity, and people can begin to think, well, we pay the clergy the special class of religious people to do the spiritual work, and the rest of us support them by our funds, but we don't really have to be involved in the work of the church because we have um, some people that are professionals at that. Well, that's not God's way at all. These very gifted people are given to the church to prepare us, members of his church, for the works of service, that we will be doing the work of ministering to others. Well, now we come to 1 Corinthians, which is surely quite familiar to all of you. And let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll be reading extensively, I think, from 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Now let's look at the beginning of chapter 12. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. 
I'm going to stop there for just a second. I won't take very long with this. Later, I'll look at it a lot more in depth. That sentence in Greek, is my understanding, does not contain the word gifts. In some of your Bibles, you'll see that the word gifts is in italics, indicating that it's not actually in the sentence. The way the NIV translates it, now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. My understanding is that in the Greek, since the word gift is not in that sentence, what it's really saying is, now about spiritual brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. About spiritual people. That helps me. Because there can be a tendency to think of spiritual gifts as being like apples on a tree, maybe. That the tree is one thing and then the fruit is something else that is kind of separate from it somehow. I don't know if I'm putting the right words on it, but it helps me to think Paul is not talking about spiritual gifts that are given to people. He's talking about spiritual people, people who live by the Spirit. Then he goes on in verse 4 to say, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Well, let's look at this. First of all, God works all of these things in all men. It's not just for a few or a chosen class of Christians. God is working these things into all of us, all of us, all of the church. God is working all of these things into all of us. Again, quickly, I'll just mention there are three different words here that we tend to clump together when we think about spiritual gifting. Paul uses three different Greek words. And in the NIV, they're translated as gifts, service, and working. Each of those are different Greek words. The word gifts is the word charisma, which, which is where we get our term charismatic. The charismatic church, meaning the churches that believe in the spiritual gifts. And that word charisma carries with it the idea that it is a gift that is given sort of generally, overarching. And many times when people in churches take these little tests, what is your spiritual gift? That's sort of the way people think about it, that I have a gift or maybe a couple of gifts, and I have them all the time, and I can use them anytime. Well, this word charisma kind of covers that thought, but there's other words here. The next, it says there are different kinds of service, is what Paul says. And this Greek word service, translated as service, is the word from which we also get the word deacon. And a deacon was a servant in the church who had particular responsibilities within the church. So this word carries with it the meaning of a gift that is for a specific purpose in a specific setting in the church. And then he says there are different kinds of working. And this Greek word is the word energeo, energy. And that carries with it the idea of kind of an explosion, like a moment in time. So we have this three different understandings of how gifts can work. There's overarching gifts, gifts that are given for specific circumstances, and then sometimes little explosions of gifts. And I had an experience with this. I was at a conference out in California. I really didn't know anybody out there. Some of the guys went out and invited me from Austin to go out to this conference. And we were at this meeting, and we were praying, and there was a man up ahead of me who I'd never met. I didn't know him at all, but I felt that I should go up and pray for him. So I walked up behind him, and I put my hand 
uh, as I was praying for him, I was behind him off his left shoulder. So my right hand is behind his back, about midway up his back, but not touching him. Maybe a few inches, of several centimeters away from his back. And I'm praying for him. And I feel like an electric shock or a thump hit my hand or jump from my hand to his back. Poof. And he responded immediately. Whoa. And then we talked about it. And he had had a very bad back, and he was healed as I held my hand back there. Now, I'm not involved in a healing ministry. I haven't been involved in healing people regularly. But to me, this was an example of this inner geo, this energy. It's a spiritual gift that God gave me for that particular moment because that man needed healing, and Jesus wanted to heal him. And I was there, and I need to be open to being used however the Lord wants to use me. So that helps me. All right, but now, finally, we're getting on into this list of gifts that we find in 1 Corinthians. And again, I want to underscore now verse 7. To each one of us, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. This is the overarching theme. And this is actually how Paul is approaching it here in 1 Corinthians These spiritual gifts are given for the common good. They are not given to us, whatever these gifts are, the flashy ones and the humble ones. They are not given to build us up. There should never be any place for pride in the working out and the using of these gifts. Each manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And now we come to the list. To one... There is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another the message of knowledge, by means of the same Spirit, to another faith, by that same Spirit, to another gifts of healing, by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of languages. Often that's translated as tongues in English, But in most translations around the world, for instance, in Russian, it just means a different kind of a language. We don't use that word tongues very often in English, and sometimes it can sound like it's a special class of spiritual gift, speaking in tongues as opposed to speaking in just some other language. And then there's another gift that God gives, the interpretation of languages. Verse 11, all these are the work of of one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. All right, so let's look at this. Within the context of the prophetic gift, this list of spiritual gifts, wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miraculous powers, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, speaking in different languages, and the interpretation of languages. Now, not all of those are flashy. Certainly, we want people in the church who are wise, have the wisdom of God. Knowledge, we want people who are knowledgeable, a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom. Faith, it's interesting. We all have faith, and yet some people have a particular gift of faith, a spiritual gift of faith. And I've seen that come into play. I'm involved in a lot of leadership teams, and... um, Sometimes we'll have a meeting and somebody there will just have a real faith that something is going to happen. They have a real confidence and hope 
and assurance of the way things are going to go. And it's of the Spirit. It's not just of their own minds or their own thinking. It's of the Spirit. You may be a person who has a gift of faith. You need to realize that people around you may not have that same level of faith. It's interesting, and it's good. And if you have this gift of faith, don't be hesitant to exercise it in your prayer time, in your conversation with others. It can really encourage other people. Of course, there's miraculous powers, which I assume would include raising the dead and healing people and things like that. Well, following this, Paul makes this argument that we saw in the book of Romans about the body as a unit, that we are all a part of the body of Christ. And it's interesting, one of the things that Paul says, even if one part of the body says, I'm not part of the body, that doesn't mean it's not part of the body. You may feel that you're outside of the church, that you're not really part of the body, but you know what? You really are. In God's sight, you are. Even if you say you're not, you are. But let's skip down a little bit and into verse 27 of chapter 12. Paul says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, prophets, teachers, workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those with speaking in different kinds of languages. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in languages? Do all interpret? But eagerly desire the greater gifts. So here's another list, apostles, prophets, teachers, people who work miracles, people who have gifts of healing, people who have a gift of helping others. That is a really sweet gift. Here's one that I believe I have, a gift of administration, the spiritual gift of administration. I don't particularly like being an administrator. It's not something that I just crave, but I seem to have a gift for it that is very helpful. Actually, that's a gift that is lacking in many ministries because people who lead ministries are often uh, evangelists or teachers, not necessarily gifted in administration. And yet, people who are gifted in administration are so very helpful to keep things in order, to keep communication clear and open, to take a lot of that administrative burden off of the people who are at the point of the spear, who are out there planting churches or preaching or teaching or baptizing, and these gifts of administration are just so very helpful. If you're a gifted administrator, I encourage you, find a place within ministry, within the church, where you can use that gift. Now we come to another example of how a chapter break kind of breaks up the flow of the teaching. At the very end of chapter 12, Paul says, And now I will show you the most excellent way. And this leads into what we know as 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but I have not love, I gain nothing. I think this is familiar to us. Here again, when I highlight, there's a list of spiritual gifts, languages, prophecy, 
understanding mysteries, having knowledge, the gift of knowledge, a word of knowledge, faith, giving to the poor, self-sacrifice even. It's very interesting, isn't it? You would think that those things could only be done in the right way, and yet those things can certainly be done in the wrong way. God gives gifts because he loves the people that we're serving, and yet if we let pride creep in, then we can be involved in these ministries out of wrong motives. I'll skip down a little bit. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. And this is one of the scriptures that people will point to to say that this gift of prophecy and the gift of speaking other languages has ceased. But I don't think we can take that because in the same thought, the Apostle Paul says, where there is knowledge, it will pass away. I don't think you can say that the gift of prophecy and the gift of speaking in unknown languages is over, and yet the gift of knowledge is still here. Paul is saying in the future, what we prophesy and what we speak and the things that we know, well, here it is. This is what he says in verse 9. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. He's saying that right now on this earth, we're not doing things perfectly. We don't see perfectly, but there is a time coming when all of this will not be necessary anymore. He said these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And then he moves right on after that discussion of love to continue the talk about the prophetic gift. So let me do this without a chapter break between it. And now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. And you can go on and read the rest of chapter 14. I'll skip down a little bit. In verse 12, Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. That's what Paul says. If we want to be involved in spiritual life, we should really focus on things that help the church. And then in verse 13, Paul says, And for this reason, anyone who speaks in a language should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in some unknown language, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. At our church in Austin, Texas, there was an older believer. His name was Rufus. He would stand up. He probably was in his 70s at the time in the service. At an appropriate time, he would stand up. And I remember him raising his hands, and he would start speaking in an unknown language. The first time it happened, I didn't quite know what to make of it. (laughs) Here's this older man speaking in a language I don't understand. And he finished and he sat down and then somebody else in the congregation gave an interpretation. And that was exactly in line with what we see here in Scripture. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. So let's go a little bit further down in chapter 14, starting in verse 26. What shall we say then, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. 
and all of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue or a language, two or at the most three should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. And if there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. This is very telling, and this is one of the great differences between the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament prophets. Here Paul says that anyone in the church can speak as a prophet prophetically. And he says two or three should speak, and everyone else should weigh carefully what is said. Why is that? Because everyone in that church who is abiding in the Spirit, living by the Spirit, has the Spirit of God and has the right and the responsibility to carefully consider and weigh and judge what a prophet says. That's very, very important. Under the new covenant, if you are a follower of Jesus and if you have the Spirit of God in you, then you have the right and the responsibility to judge and carefully consider what someone says as they claim to be a prophet. And there's so much trouble that happens in the world when somebody who is charismatic, in, in the broader sense of the word, somebody who claims to be a great prophet, somebody who actually has prophetic words, but they're not in line with the word of God, people can submit themselves to that and not put themselves in judgment above that person. Another thing that Paul says here that I want to emphasize, he says, the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. A prophet is going to be a person who is in control of themselves, not out of control in a trance or doing all kinds of strange things. It's going to be orderly and peaceful, the expression of all the gifts. And Paul says, God is not a God of disorder. He's a God of peace. In Africa, there are these prophets that will make people spin around until they're dizzy and fall down, and then they'll yell at them and tell them to start speaking in other languages and speak prophetically and things like that. And those meetings are crazy. They're out of control. And when I brought this message, many people in the church in Africa were just so happy because they thought these, quote, great men of God, unquote, these false prophets were making people lose control of themselves in order to be spiritual people. And that's just not the way it is. Our God is a God of peace. He's not a God of disorder. And I'll skip down just a little bit to verse 36. Did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. And if he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. And therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid the speaking in other languages. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Boy, these things are key. So often we hear people talk about spiritual gifts, but we don't really read what the Bible says about it. And Paul is saying, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritually gifted, those people need to acknowledge that what Paul is writing is actually the Lord's command. And if we ignore these things, Paul says that we'll be ignored. Isn't that something? And again, Paul says, be eager to prophesy and don't forbid 
the speaking in other languages. Well, when I read that, I think I need to be obedient to that. I need to try to live that out, eagerly desire these gifts. So just a few more things before we move into the practical aspects of this gift. The gift of prophecy in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is defined as a word from God that will edify, encourage, and comfort. To edify means to build up. We have the word in English, edification, the edifice. The edifice is the main part of a building, the front of a building, and to encourage people and to comfort people. And Paul said that he wanted people to prophesy. He wanted people to bring a word from God that was edifying, encouraging, and comforting. And Paul said that we are to eagerly desire that gift because that is a gift that helps others, and it's based on love of others. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is a hamburger about spiritual gifts. The bread is the gifts, chapters 12 and 14, and the meat between the bread is love, which is chapter 13. The expression of any spiritual gift, prophecy, tongues, administration, helping others, serving others, leading, those must be expressed in the context of love. Love is far more important than spiritual gifts. Seek the gifts in love. Paul says covet those spiritual gifts. Really desire them. The prophetic ministry of the Old Testament is only the model of what God wants to multiply in the New Testament. And with Jesus as this supreme example, he wants to have a nation of prophets. That's what the scripture says. The Lord wants a people who will really speak his word to build up others, to encourage others, to comfort others. And the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's in Revelation chapter 19. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Well, I just checked the time, and I think that I'll have another episode where I discuss the practical aspects of this gift of prophecy. I'll give some examples from my own life. And, of course, look at the scriptures, uh, what the Bible says about how we are to develop this. Once we desire it, how does it get used and exercised and expressed within the body. But I think I'll finish with an example. And I don't share this example to brag. <laughs> There's no boasting when we exercise the gifts that God gives. So when I give this example, I want you to know that this is the work of the Lord because he loves the people that are involved. And I'm willing to hear from him and I'm willing to share what he puts on my heart. And um, so I want to glorify him as I tell this story. A few years ago, as we were visiting my old church in Austin, Texas, I'd been invited to speak at church. And very often before I give my prepared remarks, I'll pray and ask if God has a word for me to share, a specific, what I would say is a prophetic word. For about a week before I spoke, I felt a great burden on my heart that there was a message I was to bring in this prophetic moment before my prepared remarks, and I didn't want to say it. I'll tell you what it was in just a minute. But it was a heavy, heavy burden on my heart. And as I prayed about the upcoming service, like I said, for about a week prior, 
every day. Just felt this real heaviness that I needed to speak this word, but I didn't want to because it's a pretty direct word, and if I was wrong, I was really setting myself up for failure. <laughs> it was just hard. And so when we got to the church on that Sunday during the time of the singing part of the worship service, again, this heavy burden came on me that I needed to share this word. And there was no escaping it. It clearly was of the Spirit. And so when I got up there, I said, Someone here is considering divorce. You are planning to have a divorce. And God is saying to you, Do not do this thing. God hates divorce. You may think that this is the path out of your troubles, but it is actually a path into greater trouble. Do not get divorced. Boy, I said that, and oh my goodness, my heart was heavy. I, there was really no response. I just shared it, and as you can understand, it felt like to me, everybody just got very somber all of a sudden. <laughs> but I shared it out of obedience, because I really felt like that was a message that God wanted brought at that time, at that specific time. After the service, one of the leaders came up and was uh, pretty excited and said that there was indeed a family. They had been sitting down in front off to my left as I was looking at the congregation, uh, husband and wife, and they had two or three kids, I think. And they were planning that week to go file for divorce and get a divorce. And when I shared that specific word, that prophetic word, it pierced them. It really went deep into their hearts, and it convicted them, and they did not get divorced. And actually, the message that I shared afterwards was on a theme that was very helpful to people that were in a hard marriage and thinking that maybe it's better just to leave the marriage than to press through. So I share that as an example of a prophetic word. It's a spiritual gift, clearly. It was a word that came from God, and it was a word that he gave to me because he loves that family. And in that case, he loved them so much that he would give me, of all people, a word to share with them. I didn't know them. I didn't know they were there. I was just a mouthpiece. It was like I was a postman delivering a letter. I'll take it where it needs to go, and I'll put it where it needs to be put, but it's not my letter. It's not my word. To me, that's a really good example of a prophetic word. It was a word that encouraged that family. It was a word that built them up and made them stronger. And it saved their marriage, I believe. And that's because God is a God of love. And you can see also from that experience that it was not done in some ecstatic way, not yelling and screaming and shouting and things like that. It's just me standing there simply communicating a message. And the message of God has power. And he wants us as believers to be willing to walk in that gift, that gift of comfort and power and building up. So that's what I'll talk about next time, the practical aspects of how this is lived out. And until then, my friends, may the Lord continue to reveal to you his word and his ways, because when we walk in the pathways of God, we will find rest for our souls. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all. Thank you.